This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. Check out MeUndies.com and find the best pair of underwear in the world. Get 20% off the first pair at MeUndies.com slash Cape Up. Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Renowned philanthropist and art collector Aggie Gund stunned the art world when she sold Masterpiece, a 1962 painting by Roy Lichtenstein for $165 million in July. Not because she sold it, but what she used the money for. With the help of Ford Foundation President Darren Walker, Gund used $100 million of the proceeds to start the Art for Justice Fund to combat mass incarceration. And you can hear Gund and Walker talk about why that painting and why that issue right now. Aggie Gunn, Darren Walker, thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. This is really special. Thank you. I, I like seeing you again. I saw you a number of years ago, but now I only see you on programs and <laughs> announcing things, and I don't get to see you personally, so it's especially nice. And it was really fun because we were road tripping to a dinner party in Virginia, but and that was a dinner party um, focused around art, and that's why we are here today. I want to talk to you about a work by Roy Lichtenstein from 1962 called Masterpiece. What spoke to you about that work? Why did you buy it? Well, I bought it partly because I really liked Roy and his wife, Dorothy. I saw them first at a dinner party that was at Emily Tremaine's way long ago in the late 60s, and I think what attracted me was the message, um, dear Brad, soon you'll, all, you'll have all of New York clamoring for your work. This is a masterpiece that said first, soon you'll have all New York clamoring for your work. And I had not moved to New York when I got it, but when I moved to New York, I thought it is the perfect piece. Um, I'm glad I bought that. At one point, Cy Newhouse tried to get me to sell it um, exchange it for something he had, and he would give me money on top of it because he wanted to have a, the piece. And I thought, I'm never going to sell this piece. So I just loved living with it. Always was such an iconic painting to me. And I had remembered, and I won't say the name of who it was, but somebody that had said, oh, well, out of the contemporary artists, Roy will never amount to anything. And um, I was so, it was a very well-known uh, director of a museum. And I mean, you can name names. It's okay. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it would be very appreciated if I said who it was. He has his opinion about contemporary art. He happened to be at the Cleveland Museum, and I think they were very slow in collecting art, and he used to follow me around and say, You'll never amount to anything until you collect Asian art. Hmm. So, and well, then one night said that at a Guggenheim program with my husband in the audience. Well, at least she's managed to marry somebody that collects Asian wow. art. Wow! So, holy it smokes! Was a very funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you showed him because now you just recently sold masterpiece and used a big chunk of the money to start the Art for Justice Fund. Darren, when I um, read about what was happening, I actually heard about it from another mutual friend of ours who said, 
oh, did you hear about this thing that Aggie Gunn has done? And Darren is in the middle of it. Um, she sold a painting and now they've started, they've started this thing. And when I finally got a chance to read the story behind what was happening, it's such an interesting, dare say, brilliant idea of turning, uh, putting art to work for justice. Well, I think it was Aggie's remarkable vision and her own passion for two things for art, which she's been uh, a lifelong collector and someone who loves artists, and her passion for justice, her concern for injustice and unfairness, as she has seen it in the world, particularly manifest in the criminal justice system and manifest in the ways in which racial minorities have been discriminated against. And I think for Aggie, the criminal justice system is probably the greatest manifestation of the kind of injustice that has really concerned her. And, and I think the, the, uh, her seeing um, 13th by Ava DuVernay, uh, Aggie has met with and, and spent a lot of time with Brian Stevenson and Michelle Alexander and Sherilyn Eiffel, people like that, as she's done her own homework to come to the conclusion that this is a, a scourge on, on the nation that has to be addressed. You know, and I'm glad you brought up 13th because I was going to ask if that was true, that seeing um, Ava DuVernay's um, 13th was the thing that sparked this idea, the Art for Justice Fund idea. It did. We, I was having dinner with an old friend of my brother's who was deep, my brother George, who was deep into film. And this was a, a, a person, Marcus Yu, that took uh, Cindy Sherman, myself, and his friend that he lives with, his partner, um, to see 13th. And I, up to the very minute, um, we were going to go, said, I don't think I can see this film because there'll be a lot of... This was something I thought was going to have a lot of 12 years of slave and that I was mm -hmm. never able to go see. Marcus finally convinced me, and then I was really glad that I had gone to see it. And since I have, as Darren didn't mention, but I have six of my 12 grandchildren are black. I was going to ask you about that. So they it influenced me in that way, too. I thought I should do something about something that, to me, is so wrong about our system that we've just loaded up our prisons with mostly um, people of color and given them different penalties and let them out on parole and when they've done the same um, minor crime as whites, the whites get on parole and the blacks don't. And I thought I should know more about it. And then I thought maybe this is something I could address. But if it again hadn't been for Darren, I wouldn't have ever been able to do it. So. Let me bring you back to your grandchildren since you, you brought them up and you talk about them a, a, a lot. And it, to try to make people understand that you're, you are not, uh, a tourist when it comes to social justice, that 
this is something that you deeply believe in, that this is something deeply important to you, deeply important to you because of family. What are you hearing from your grandchildren? What did they say to you that helped push you over the edge to go see a movie that you were afraid to see? And for good reason, I would say, as, as an, an African-American who's grown sort of weary of seeing um, people of color hurt, killed uh, on video. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's as much my the two children of my four that have um, one of them two adopted children from Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, which is uh, like another world to me when I went down there for their births. I, I really looked into a lot when I was there, the history of Mississippi, and I began to know what everybody should know. And so that's why I was so glad to meet Brian Stevenson, because I think he has a, the the whole thing sort of sussed out where he says we don't know enough about what it was to be a slave and to go through slavery. And, of course, Kara Walker has been somebody I've liked, that's an artist that does this. And more artists than I've ever thought of are very much into um the history now and the social injustice, like Hank Willis Thomas, like the guy that went to Yale and that has done a wonderful job of illustrating. He's with Jack Shaman and Titus. Yeah, Titus, who has done a job of pointing out a lot about presidents that had slaves. And I've always thought about Jefferson in that way and read all the books about the Hemings and um, about uh, his relationship with his children, which he didn't give freedom to on the whole. Um, some of them did get to be free, one especially that could pass as white, but he really listened to his daughter rather than should have done what he should have done, having had these many children with his mistress that he didn't even, in his final will, give freedom to either. And you mentioned Brian Stevenson, who is the co-founder or founder of the Equal Justice Initiative um, and who is pulling together the funds to open up a, a museum um, to c commemorate, not commemorate, to put attention to the lynchings that have happened across the country. He, he speaks in a way to these issues that I think is very compelling and forces the country to come to terms with, face um, these issues that still haunt it simply because people won't talk about it. And folks yeah, like and, Brian. And especially the legacy that he's putting forward of lynching. I said to a group of students that there are a lot of interns in different places that not only in the studio in the school but um, with MoMA that come to visit and I had a room full of them of about 55 of them last night and I looked around the room and I thought if I asked these people about lynching these kids that still are in college and some of them art history majors what they knew about it, they wouldn't know anything about a lynching because they weren't born in the 50s and they don't really know 
about that history and if more of his TED Talks, which are really fantastic, could get out there and could be taught and that we could really have more of an equality about teaching black history than we do in schools. I mean, it's, it's a, you can get courses, but it's not as if we require it. And we Maggie, should. I don't think, though, that older Americans know about our history of lynching, too, because I think it, as no, Brian says, it's been something that we refuse to acknowledge. Well, I came back, I think you're right about that. We don't acknowledge it. I came back from Germany. I was in Poland because a friend of mine was the ambassador from the United Kingdom to Poland. And I came back from there and I said to this one psychiatrist that I was talking to, why didn't people stop stop them from doing this? And why did these things exist near towns? And he said, well, what did you do in the 50s about lynchings mm. that you heard about? And it really took me back because I had known that there were such things, but they were very remote to me and as a child that should have known. In the 50s, I was in high school. I was going to college. And why wouldn't I have heard about this more than just very peripherally? And I thought it was terrible, but I thought there weren't that many lynchings. You know, that was the reason I didn't know about them, but there were. And so I think what he's trying to point out and the fact that he uses as an illustration what's happened now in German cities where they have markers of what they did to people and how they mistreated and um, made, you know, the brunt of killings and everything else was would be an important thing um, for us to learn about. So I champion his really trying to get people to recognize that there is another history. I've also learned about it through having black children that people don't seem to value black minds like yours, say, and Darren's as much as they do minds of Asians or other people that are not in the monolithic mainstream of, of either their countries. This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. You want to look good in your underwear and feel comfortable, right? But the perfect balance is hard to find. Don't sacrifice style or comfort. Check out MeUndies. MeUndies are made from a sustainable source, natural soft fabric that is three times softer than cotton. That's what makes them the world's most comfortable underwear. Try them today. There is no risk. If you don't love your MeUndies, they're free. To get your 20% off, free shipping, and 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash CapeUp. That's MeUndies.com slash CapeUp. You know, Darren, let, we've talked a lot about br what Brian Stevenson is doing, and let's talk about what you're doing, the, bo the both of you. In the Art for Justice Fund, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. President, um, that the Ford Foundation is going to help run it, help administer it. How's it. How is this going to work? Well, first, we were partners with Aggie as she developed the strategy, actually, towards the objectives 
around reducing mass incarceration. And we have set some numerical targets that we want to achieve. 25% reduction in the number of men and women incarcerated in America over the next five to seven years. And that will happen through a series of investments in states across the country because remember, most people in prisons are in state penitentiary systems and county jails. They're not in federal prisons. That's a a very good point. And so the funds, the $100 million plus the funds that we are raising in a matching campaign will be directed to organizations working both nationally and in states on specific strategies, strategies that address disparities in sentencing, that uh, aim to reduce uh, private prisons, that seek to um, reform uh, prosecutors' offices, um, that seek to raise awareness and educate the public about the history uh, of racism, slavery, and the implications today uh, for this legacy that we must address. And through those uh, investments, which will come really through Aggie's generosity in a series of organizations, the Ford Foundation's work is really to, in some ways, staff Aggie and to support her vision Um, with the expertise that we have in-house here. So as Aggie said, she has relied on the expert staff at Ford, who uh, many of whom have experience in criminal justice reform efforts. And so we are an advisor to her. The actual operations of this is um, really an administrative matter that we don't probably need to get into for the purposes of your important program, Jonathan. (laughs) Well, look... um you folks can go to artforjustice.org to to read up on everything. But the interesting thing is I was looking to see how this was going to work. Um, you have a specific tab that says what the Art for Justice Fund will not fund. And it goes through a whole list of things, which I thought, I don't think I've actually seen another organization do this, put out there. We will not um, fund individual organizations and individual programs. And you know, having been involved in philanthropy peripherally and also one of my first jobs out of college was at WNYC working with the development department. So I understand what you're getting at. But why is it important for people to know um, that individual programs are not going to be funded? Well, it's very important to not waste people's time. We want to be explicit that you not waste your time seeking funds if this program is not something that will fund your kind of activity, your type of organization. The real challenge is, and as all philanthropists know, there are thousands of organizations that could potentially be funded, and you have a limited amount of money. And Aggie had a set of specific things she wants to achieve. There are a set of high-performing organizations who we believe will be best positioned to deliver, such as 
Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative. So there are organizations who we know are well suited to actually right now get to work uh, to really deliver on the Art for Justice Fund mission. Because actually, the the goals that you're trying to to achieve, Aggie, th- th- there's no time to waste. So so I I get that. You know, one thing that I wanted to to ask, and I know you wanted to say something just a minute ago, but you're not the only one who is involved in this. Um, you you are the visionary. You are the founder. You you put in a big chunk of the money. But there are a bunch of other people who have also sold artwork to be a part of this. How easy was it to get people to part with art to help be a part of this? Well, I think I can't take any credit for that aspect because Darren's been the leader in trying to talk to people about it. I was never a good fundraiser. And I, <laughs> when I I wish people could see Mama, all the eyes rolling in this room. You were not a good well, fundraiser? No, no, when I was, I had David Rockefeller Sr. And nothing could have been better than his interest. And yeah, when we were raising the funds to build the Taniguchi edition um, and building to uh, the modern, he was unbelievable with the help from Alice uh, Victor and Marnie Pillsbury in saying, yes, I'll have lunch with them or I'll go down and visit them in um, Argentina or I will... Um, see them for supper or I will talk. try to talk them into this or that that they could do. And um, so it really was um, Darren going after some people. I would never have <laughs> dared to ask for money for this because they could turn and say, well, you have the money, you give it. We have better things to do. But um, that that was not the way... He went about it, and he has found people that are interested. I think many people are interested now. They range from the right to the left in criminal justice, and I I think many of them have different opinions than I would have. I'm more concerned, or not more, but I'm concerned about the people that are being held hostage in this awful environment that prisons are. And I think you shouldn't be making money off of prisoners um, and then letting them live in conditions that aren't just or aren't really good for anybody to live under and in because the recidivism rate which exists is much more likely to be damaged by the prisons and how the prisons have treated people than uh, than life itself. I mean, there are books like the, um, Becoming Susan Burden that are really very compelling. They show you what actually prison can do to harm people and re-harm them by pushing them into a position where they go back. And it also shows how people that really have the passion for getting rid of what prison does to you can do. Jonathan, I want to address the really remarkable fundraising effort that's underway as a result of Aggie's vision, because the idea of 
raising a matching $100 million, which is quite ambitious, is something that's well underway. In fact, there are already over 25 collectors and philanthropists who have signed up since the announcement since the announcement and it's been really an exciting um, experience to see how energized people are by Aggie's vision for the fund and how collectors are uh, both giving art but also cash we're happy to accept cash <laughs> at the art for justice fund I was going to say not just, not just and art. and the 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 uh, generosity of people like Alice Walton and the uh, Walton Family Foundation or Donald Marin, who Aggie was on the board of MoMA with, or Lori Tisch, the chair mm -hmm. of the board of the Whitney Museum, and so many others. The Lauders. Uh, the Lauders, of course. Uh, the the Tuttles. The Chenaults. Many, many prominent African-American collectors. Indeed, there's over a dozen um, African-American collectors. Pamela Joyner out in San Francisco, who have signed up um, really because of their inspiration um, um, and and their their just uh, admiration, I think. Well, for see, Aggie. I was going to ask how how important is it that it's Aggie Gunn who is behind this that is making people think I need to be a part of this as much as it is the you know what she's trying to accomplish. Well, I think it is because Aggie is behind this that people are so mobilized because Aggie is held in such high regard and high esteem by art collectors around the world. And so the fact that she would take this uh, unprecedented step of selling this masterpiece is um, for many collectors an indication that this is a serious, serious matter. And for some of them, they understand the issues around criminal justice. And for others, they are really only learning about the issues through Aggie's efforts to, uh, to really elevate this as a public policy crisis and as an opportunity for philanthropy to make a difference. Last question, Aggie. Why do you love art so much? I, I, I don't know. I think it's because, it, I mean, and this is a very selfish thing to say, it was something I could see right away and never forgot when I saw a photograph or a painting or a sculpture that was about art. I could never get it out of my mind. And when I see the horizon and water and sunset, I do see a Rothko in many that I really see artists and art as something that I can tackle or know about that gives me not only satisfaction but is something I could do better than um, most of the people that could do far more important things like science and you know business and law and doctor being a doctor that this was just attached to me from an early age and I, I go into a house now, as I've said many times, where there's nothing on the walls, and it really frightens me because <laughs> I grew up in a household that had a lot of things, though my father collected in a very esoteric way, and because of living in the West and being a stunt um, writer for different things, he identified with the West and collecting Western art. So. 
Um, that wasn't really my thing as much as it belonged to some of my brothers who sort of emulated one of them, particularly emulated what my father had done in his youth, which was to have a ranch out in Nevada. And um, he then became interested in cowboy poetry. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But <laughs> no, and I take it you're not too, too much into well, it. Well, my daughter went to one of the festivals they had out in Elko, Nevada, and found that she was just mesmerized by this. I think anything one does with art and poetry and writing and visual arts, and that's one of the things that Darren has helped me and I can help a little with too is identifying artists that do things for this art for justice um, and really make things that made it clearer to people what happens in this massive incarceration we have. So that would be my wish that we would get artists. And one of the people that works here and is so great is a woman that did poetry and did the first big poem for uh, Obama's first inauguration, uh, Elizabeth Alexander, who was um, really all for having more art, which I am, that illustrates things that have happened to this art for justice. Aggie Gunn, founder of the Art for Justice Fund, Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation, both visionaries. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. there. My name is Alyssa Rosenberg, and I write a column about culture and politics for the opinion section of the Washington Post. I'm also the host of a new podcast miniseries called The American War. It's a guide to Ken Burns' new documentary, The Vietnam War, but it's also a deep dive on the biggest issues from that conflict that linger with us 50 years later. We'll discuss each episode as it airs with Ken, his co-director Lynn Novick, and many of the other voices featured in the film. Join me for this conversation on how America lost its way in Vietnam, and how Ken and Lynn are trying to help us find our way back. You can find The American War wherever you listen to podcasts and online at WashingtonPost.com slash The American War. Thanks for listening. The Washington 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 Post. Post.